This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. There's this one study that shows that kids who do chores around the house have a greater sense of purpose. And it's because they have a role to play. Even if they don't like it, they're put in a position where they're giving back and they feel needed. So hear that, Evie? Up there somewhere? (laughs) Yeah. She's on dishwashing duty. Yeah. All the time. I'm doing this for you, babe. Welcome to U-Turns, the podcast where we talk about all things change, transformation. I'm Lisa Oz. And I am Jill Herzig. And um, in our conversations, in this nice safe space we've created here in our podcasting studio, um, I think we have kind of tried to be realistic about what we're looking for in times of transition. And the idea that searching for happiness, like, that's what you want. You want to be happy. You want to come out of whatever transition you're in and you want to feel like you're happy and happier than you were. And um, I don't. I, I feel like we keep hearing from people that there's something else and something bigger. Yeah, that's why we're taking <laughs> it out of the safe space today. We're going to the dangerous place, which is where all the good stuff happens yes, anyway. Absolutely. <laughs> and our guest today is going to lead us there. We are joined by Emily Esfahani-Smith. She is a journalist and author of The Power of Meaning, Finding Fulfillment in a World Obsessed with Happiness. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Emily. Thanks for having me. So let's break it down. Meaning versus happiness. Why? What? <laughs> how? <laughs> so I was in graduate school studying positive psychology a few years ago, which is this field of psychology, social science research that's concerned with the study of the good life. So how can we be happier? You know, how do you live a life of character? How do you deepen your relationships? And while I was learning about positive psychology research, I started noticing that, you know, there's so much of this research on happiness within positive psychology, and it gets blasted out to the media. And there's this obsession in our culture with happiness, that it's the be-all, end-all of life. And I remember— It's in our 
constitution or right. a declaration of independence, yes. right? Yeah, it's like exactly. part of the core of who Americans are. Yeah, life And as liberty. a magazine editor, I was guilty of, <laughs> you know, making 1,001 tips yeah. <laughs> available to people well, on happiness. I, I, think it's, I think it's reasonable because people think, oh, if things aren't going right for me, if I feel bad, then the solution is to pursue happiness. That will make me feel better. But what I learned in this program was that actually— this manic pursuit of happiness that our culture kind of encourages us to do can backfire in a big way. So when people obsess over happiness and and kind of direct their lives around the pursuit of it, the way that, you know, the media encourages us to do articles, these studies, they actually end up feeling unhappy and lonely as a result of that. And on the other hand, there's this whole other way of kind of organizing your life and this other pursuit, which is meaning. And I remember there was this one study in particular that was distinguishing between a happy life and a meaningful life. And it showed that, you know, happiness is about feeling good in the moment, positive emotions. It comes and goes. Um, people who are happy kind of get the things that they want. They like they, they spend their time shopping and taking care of themselves, whereas meaning was bigger. It was about connecting and contributing to something beyond yourself, whether it's a community, raising your children, important work that you do that you can feel proud of, and that people who are leading meaningful lives are doing things like, you know, raising kids, volunteering, engaged in meaningful work, starting, you know, companies or projects or pursuits in their communities to make the world in some way a better place. And I thought, wow, like, if I think about the kind of life I want to lead, it's it's meaning. Like, that's what I want to be thinking about, not happiness. You know, generationally, did you find yourself completely out of step with <laughs> with your peers? It's funny. So I'm, I'm a member of the millennial generation, and there's this, there are kind of two stories to tell about yeah, the millennial. Yeah, you get a bad rap, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so on the one hand, there is a lot of evidence that suggests that millennials really care about meaning, but the way that they conceive of meaning, I think, can be problematic because they think, oh, I only want to work at jobs that are meaningful for me. I only want to, you know, do things outside of my job that's meaningful. And meaning has to be this kind of capital M meaning or capital P purpose that they're trying to find in their work. And one of the things I try to do in my book is bring the concept of meaning down to earth a little bit because I think we've put it up on a pedestal, especially young people. And when you put it up on a pedestal and you think, oh, I have to find a job that changes the world in some grand way or my life has to be heroic or epic and for the history books, that you end up missing the point about what meaning really is. And then ultimately, later in life, feeling disappointment when those things don't come to pass as they inevitably won't for so many of us who end up leading ordinary lives that are wonderful, but not the extraordinary thing that we maybe thought when we were in our late teens, early 20s. Yeah, that's something that's so cool about your book. It, it, there's not a lot of grandiosity mm-hmm. to your vision of meaning. And, you know, when I tried to distill it and think about, okay, what's the message in this book for all of us? It did not feel to me like it was great grand ambition, mm. more in the moment kind of meaning than... Definitely. And meaning that you kind of construct for yourself in the moment. I mean, when I so when I first came across that study on happiness versus meaning, and 
I ended up writing an article for it for The Atlantic that ended up being titled, There's More to Life Than Being Happy. What really motivated that idea that there's more to life than happiness is looking around at the people who I really loved and cared about, my friends, my fiancé, my parents, who were kind of stressed out all the time. They weren't leading super glamorous lives, but they they were doing important work and in work broadly defined, whether it's kind of maintaining a garden, you know, taking care of their family, being a caretaker, or, you know, career work. And there's no kind of place in this cultural conversation on well-being that I think values that kind of life. And so I wanted to put a language around it and kind of honor those kinds of lives. Yeah. I'm friends with a psychologist who spoke to the fact that if happiness is the goal, it's not enough um, to counterbalance this level of suffering in the world. So the moments of happiness that we have just feeling good really doesn't justify the suffering that so many of us, and existentially Mm. how much suffering there is in the world, but meaning really does. It makes you, it gives you a reason to wake up in the morning in spite of the fact that there will be suffering and that will be hard and you will struggle. Because saying the reward or the counter to that is, you know, a little bit of happiness isn't enough to warrant the the amount of suffering there is. That that's such an important point. And I think that you can look at that in a global way, like how rates of depression, suicide, opioid, drug, alcohol abuse are all increasing. And the research is pretty clear, my read of it anyways, that what's driving this rising tide of despair is a is a lack of meaning in people's lives. But also on a more micro level in your own life, like the more, you know, immediate forms of suffering, they don't you don't have to necessarily be a drug addict, but just the stress in your life, the uncertainties, the self-doubt, and how having some reason kind of gets you through that and pushes you on through the, you know, good stuff, but also through the bad stuff. Is that what you mean when you talk about in your book, learning to suffer well? I I was struck by that phrase. Yeah, I love the, you know, Buddhist concept that life is suffering. It sounds like such a downer, but I think when you drill down and you think about all the ways that we on a day-to-day basis, are suffering, whether it's anxiety about our status, that we're never going to accomplish the goals we want to, that, oh, we're never going to be good enough, that, you know, I, I'm so stressed out, that, some you know, someone I love is dying or sick or, oh, my kid's getting bullied. There's so many ways that we can just be full of anxiety and dread and hopelessness. And, the ability to kind of manage that and to push through that and be resilient in the face of it is it's a fundamental capacity that you have to master if you want to lead a good life. And the research is clear that the way to be resilient and to suffer well, as you know, to quote this one researcher who I quote, um, is to be able to find a meaning in that suffering. Yeah. I think the happiness becomes elusive the more you pursue it anyway. And especially in this day and age where you, 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 the happiness you may achieve isn't even enough because you have the expectation that you should have the same level of happiness as everyone that you see on your Instagram feed. And so it becomes like a, a very f- fruitless chase, which creates suffering in spite of the fact that you're trying to search for happiness. Yeah, no, exactly. It's the, you know, the target's always shifting. It's the old, you know, thing about the hedonic treadmill that as soon as you're a little bit happier, you want to be even more happier because you adapt to that happiness level. And then you look around at other people and, you know, these are kind of false personas that they're, you know, 
project into the world, but still, you know, it's it's hard to you compare what's you know what you're feeling on the inside to what they're showing on the outside, but it's still hard and. Um, and definitely the fact that like happiness is so elusive and, and that we strive for it is kind of causing some of this suffering. And I think you can say the same thing about happiness as people have wisely said about success, which is you shouldn't strive to be successful to get into that great college or get in that ideal job. You should just strive to do good work, strive to leave a good life, and that happiness um, will often be the byproduct of that. Um, but even if it's not always that you can have the satisfaction of knowing that you've done something that's kind of moved the needle forward in some way for others. You sound like a Stoic, like <laughs> Emily Aurelius. <laughs> yeah, I do love Stoicism, I have to say. <laughs> when we come back, we're going to dip into how we actually create meaning in our lives. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm late. I'm late. Very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from undercover tourists. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from undercover tourists and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with undercover tourists now and save. UndercoverTourist.com had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O. TIKA.com. Before the break, we were speaking with Emily Espahani Smith, the author of The Power of Meaning, and we're trying to figure out how to create meaning in our lives. And you have a technique for pillars of meaning. So, can you walk us through those, please? After I came across this research and this insight that a life of meaning is what we should be pursuing instead of focusing so much on happiness, which, by the way, is an idea that's grounded in ancient philosophy, and so it's it's not just kind of modern research. Anyways, after I came, you know, upon that insight and, and was really moved by it, I started wondering, well, how exactly can we find meaning in our own lives? Is there some universal formula that can apply to everybody, or are there— is yes, it please? I yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. It's like meaning in three steps. Um, or do we each have to kind of work through it on our own and find the answers in our own? And the answer kind of ends up being both, all of the above. So um, I went on this kind of journalistic exploration where I interviewed many people, read through as you know, really thousands of pages of psychology research neuroscience, you know, the, that ancient philosophy that I mentioned, literature, anything that I could find that really bore on this question of 
how people find meaning. And as I started looking through all these bits of data, I started noticing certain patterns come up again and again. And so when you look at what people are saying when they tell you my life is really meaningful, they're usually talking about um, one of four things or all four of them or a combination. So the first is belonging, having a sense of belonging. And that really means being in relationships or in communities where you are valued for who you are intrinsically and where you value others in turn for who they are. So it's not like you're only valued because you subscribe to the beliefs of the community or because you accomplish certain things, but just by virtue of being a person in the world, you're valued. And so like this kind of pure unconditional like love that, you know, we aspire for. So that's kind of what belonging is. The second is purpose. And meaning and purpose are terms that get conflated and used interchangeably. But purpose is actually more specific than meaning. It's about having a goal or some kind of principle that organizes your life and that involves making a contribution to others. So, you know, for example, you know, your purpose might be I want to be a doctor and work on a cure for cancer. I spoke to a hospital cleaner who said, my purpose is helping sick people heal. So she kind of took the day-to-day activities that she was doing and connected it to, you know, the bigger mission of the hospital and the healthcare industry. So that's purpose. And the point I like to make about it is that it comes in all shapes and sizes. So to kind of go back to one of the things we were talking about earlier, this idea that meaning has to be grand— it's not—that's not always the case. You know, it can be a more local, in-the-moment thing. For and a lot of parents tell me, my purpose is raising my kids. Even as an act that makes some kind of contribution can be kind of purpose-building. Like, there's this one study that shows that kids who do chores around the house have a greater sense of purpose. And it's mm. because they have, like, a role to play. Even if they don't like it, they're kind of— put in a position where they're giving back and they feel needed. So you hear that, Evie? Up there somewhere? <laughs> yeah. She's on dishwashing duty. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> I'm doing this for you, babe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but exactly. your purpose can shift, it sounds like. It doesn't have to be a lifelong purpose. It sounds like you can have a different purpose for different phases of your life. Definitely. And I think that, you know, when we think about transitions and how, like, life can shift and move over time— One of the things that makes those transitions so hard is that there's usually a shift in purpose happening, and so you lose an old purpose, and you have to find a new one, and that can be painful. You know, there's research showing that when people are searching for meaning, they're not as happy, and they're kind of suffering more, but once they find it, they feel better. But in those transitions, you're, like, doing that hard work of, like, growth and searching and finding. So definitely, you know, you may— your primary purpose might be your job for many decades of your life, then you retire and you have to find one. Or it might be raising your kids, they go off to school, you have to find a new one. And that searching period, don't expect it to feel happy right. or, <laughs> you know, delicious in any particular way. It's, this is exactly search is a search. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's like the, the pain is kind of how you know that you're growing. So if that's any hope, right? That yeah. is. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we have purpose. We have belonging. Right. And then going here. The the third one is transcendence. And these are those moments of awe and wonder where you are kind of 
lifted above the your ordinary consciousness, ordinary kind of experience of the world, and feel connected to something much bigger than yourself. And this can kind of exist on a spectrum. So some people have major transcendent experiences where they experience a full sense of self-loss. I spoke to um, a Buddhist meditator who told me that on one of his retreats, he was sitting out by the pond meditating, and all of a sudden—this was after, you know, weeks of meditation, by the way, so don't expect this to kind of happen if you start Mm -hmm. meditating—but all of a sudden, his sense of self completely dissolved, and he felt at one with everything around him. And these experiences— in part what makes it meaningful is they affect a transformation in us where we, after we have the experience, we come back and we feel more connected to others. And because of that connection, more wanting to do good in the world. So I, I talk about how these experiences can exist on a spectrum. Let me tell you about a more you know minor experience, which is that um, there's a study where the researchers had students go out and look up at this um, towering grove of eucalyptus trees um, out on Berkeley's campus in California just for a minute. But even after that experience of awe and transcendence, they had this feeling of connectedness and it transformed them just like it transformed mm. my friend who had this more powerful experience of self-loss. And the way the researchers measured it is by um, after they exposed them to that transcendent view, they put them in a situation where one of the confederates in the study, so someone who was in on the study, had a thing of pens and dropped them all over the place. And the people who had the transcendent experience were more likely to be helpful to this person and pick up more pens than those in a control group. Uh. So, yeah, so those are transcendent experiences. They they are intrinsically meaningful because they they do lead to the sense of connectedness, but then they also kind of reorient our lives in a way that makes us behave in more meaningful manners. So it connects us to something bigger than ourselves. Exactly, exactly. And that that can be, you know, with purpose, like you can feel connected to something beyond yourself, like your organization's mission or your family. But with transcendence, it's something more cosmic. Like it's the universe. It's humanity as a whole. Like little awe. Yeah, little awe. Or like, you know, God. Like religion is a really powerful portal to transcendence too. And increasingly— we are not a religious people, yeah. Um, so maybe this is a this is a growing challenge. And we're not a people who are in nature. I think we're missing those experiences for awe and transcendence in our culture now, and it, that has to be hurting us in our search for meaning. I would think. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I think so, and I think that there is this kind of this. Um, a sociologist named Emil Durkheim talked about how. People have kind of two fundamental natures. One is just the nature that goes out, eats, sleeps, works, is engaged in day-to-day life. The other is this nature that wants to experience the sacred. And so we're kind of emphasizing one at the expense of the other, and it's we're starved for these experiences. Yeah. Well, that was Jung and Freud's big argument, wasn't it? Jung thought the primary motivator was for union with the divine. Yeah. And Freud said, oh, no, 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 it's about the penis. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess I'm more with Jung on that one. <laughs> um, okay, so introduce us to the fourth concept behind meaning. So this one is storytelling. And, you know, when I think of storytelling, before I wrote this book, the first thing I would think of is novels and movies and television shows, these kind of fictional stories that we engage with in our day-to-day lives. Um And those are important for meaning. But what I'm really talking about when I talk about storytelling is the story that you tell yourself about yourself, the narrative that you craft about your life, where you came from, who you are, and where you're going. 
And this pillar turned out to be, I think, in a lot of ways, the most interesting one because it. I think a lot of people don't realize that they are the authors of their stories, that they have the capacity to therefore change and edit the story if they're telling a story that's kind of holding them back. So there's this really rich um, research tradition in psychology around what's called narrative therapy. And it shows that the stories that we tell, and we're all telling stories, whether we realize it or not, about who we are and why things happen the way they do, the stories we tell determine how we think about ourselves and how we experience the world. And if you're telling a bad story, the story of, oh, I'm not good enough, um, I'm always failing, I'm a victim, it actually affects your sense of day-to-day meaning. People who tell these more negative stories feel like their lives are less meaningful as opposed to people who tell stories that are defined by themes of growth and love and redemption and kind of forward movement. When we get back, we are going to explore this idea of storytelling a little bit more deeply. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm late. I'm late for the important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from undercover tourists. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from undercover tourists and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with undercover tourists now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O. T-I-K-A dot com. We've been speaking with Emily Espahani-Smith. She is the author of The Power of Meaning and editor at the Manhattan Institute. And we're talking about storytelling and primarily the stories we tell ourselves as one of the pillars for a life of meaning. Can we talk about your story a little bit Mm -hmm. and how you came to the the point of understanding meaning as as sort of your why. So I I think that my interest in meaning must have been seated in my childhood because I had a childhood where I was really surrounded by people who were seekers and organized their lives around this pursuit of meaning. So I grew up in Montreal living in a Sufi meeting house and Uh, For those who might not know, Sufism is a school of mysticism that's associated with Islam, and um, some popular common cultural touch points are the whirling dervishes, so people, you know, might know who those are. Uh, The poet Rumi was also a Sufi, 
Uh, so, so what is Sufism? It's this kind of spiritual path where you are, like a lot of the other mystical paths as well, whether it's, you know, Jewish uh, mysticism or Christian mysticism or even um, Buddhism, Hinduism, you're trying to move forward and ex- and find yourself um, growing closer to God. This kind of union to the divine is what drives these spiritual seekers. And so what that meant growing up in the meeting house was that, you know, People would come, these Sufis would come to our home twice a week in the evening, and they would meditate for several hours in this large room that we had, sitting on the floor, listening to classical Persian Sufi music. Uh, I'm a little bit imagining little Emily running around (laughs) and in between them with your toys. But no. (laughs) No, definitely. I mean, I definitely, I was, you know, I was always kind of, I was running around, and there were (laughs) sometimes this— the bathroom that they would all use on the main floor um, had a light switch on the outside. And so when I was feeling very mischievous, I would <laughs> turn the light switch off when I would see someone go in there, which wasn't in the spirit of, <laughs> of you know, Sufism, of exactly. but I had, you know, I had some ways to go. Um, but so meditation was part of their practice and an emphasis on loving kindness as well and on service. And they, so they had this kind of spiritual discipline. And I grew up with these people who cared about leading meaningful lives and who weren't caught up in this happiness zeitgeist. You know, a lot of them had led really difficult lives. They were refugees from the Middle East or they were Westerners who had been beaten up by life in other ways. And yet they found comfort in this spiritual practice that was difficult and demanding, but that brought them a sense of meaningfulness. So, you know, eventually we we moved out of the meeting house. We came to the U.S. where I spent the second half of my childhood. And I think without that daily grounding of Sufism in my life, I really began to wonder, how do you live a meaningful life outside of a religious and spiritual context? What makes life worth living? And that question led me to study philosophy in college and uh, positive psychology in graduate school. And it was really in that positive psychology program, to go back to what we were talking about in the beginning, where I came across this research about happiness and meaning, that I thought back to the Sufis and thought, oh, of course, like that's what they were doing. And that's what my own kind of yearning for something more has been driven by. And that's why I feel so ill at ease by these cultural messages that say happiness, 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 because I was coming from kind of a different heritage. Um and I wrote my book to kind of appeal to people who may be religious, may not be religious. Because I think that, you know, to your point that we're less religious today, I think that makes the question of meaning all that much more and, urgent. And just let me interrupt for a second. Yeah. Are you religious in an active way? Are you, do you consider yourself a religious person? I would say that I have a very strong religious sensibility. So I really love religion. I'm fascinated by all religions. Um you know, when I'm home, if my parents, you know, they come to the meeting house in New York, I'll go with them, the Sufi meeting house mm-hmm. with my husband. You know, we go to um, church services together. So I kind of, you know, I'm kind of a junkie for all variants of it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it sounds as though you have found your purpose in trying to explain what you've learned, share what you've learned about meaning over time. But is that is that what you feel like your purpose is now? So I'm working on um, a new book proposal about ambition and success, and I've been thinking a lot about my own, you know, kind of path and 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 thoughts about success and redefinition of it. And 
One of the things that is clear to me is that in some of my earlier years, like as I was late late stages of high school, trying to apply to colleges, looking in college about what my future would be, that I was very much caught up in kind of a success mindset. Like you have to get into a really good school. You have to like get a job that you can support yourself and that's prestigious and all these things. And doing this book and also kind of doing the research for this book that I hope to write about ambition has really made me realize that the best way that for you, kind of from the perspective of your kind of mental health and your sanity, to think about success is by yoking it to whatever you think your purpose is. So it's not about how many, you know, books you sell or how much money you're making or what house you live in, but it's about the extent to which you're living out this purpose that's really important to you. And I I would kind of think of my purpose as, you know, finding these ideas and sharing them with people and kind of moving them uh, the way that I was moved as a kid reading, you know, these great books that profoundly affected me. Yeah. So for listeners out there who are maybe maybe struggling, Mm -hmm. maybe feeling unhappy and making the shift from unhappiness or even from being happy to finding more meaning, what techniques would you offer to help them shift their stories, find a purpose? How do they go down this path of creating more meaning in their lives specifically? Definitely. I mean, there are two things that come to mind. And one is um, taking yourself outside of the really toxic process of social comparison. Because I think that if you're talking about, you know, yoking your sense of success and identity to what your purpose is, as soon as you start comparing yourself to others, whether it's on Instagram or, oh, my my friend who's, you know, this successful in their career or whatever, then you lose sight of what you're here to do. And so just, you know, removing yourself from that process of social comparison, just staying in your own swim lane, realizing that we each have unique, important work to do on this earth and that what they do, it does not make me any lesser. Um, and the second, I would say, focus on how you can shift your story if you're telling a story that's holding you back. So I think of this guy who I, I wrote about in my book named Emika Naka, who had been, you know, it's an extreme example, but I think it's one that we can apply to our own lives too. He had been paralyzed playing football. And so after he had this injury, he started telling himself a really negative story. Like, I'm never going to be successful. I'm never going to get married. Like, my parents are going to—I'm going to be dependent on them for the rest of my life. Like, look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm a loser, basically. Um, but with time, he started to reflect and think about who he was. And he realized that the person that he was before his injury was actually— a pretty selfish person, that he partied a lot, that he cared more about being the life of the party than helping other people, that he cared more about his own performance on the football team than how his team was doing. And this kind of edit to his story that, oh, no, like, I can be a better person than the one that I was before ended up changing his life and leading him to getting a degree in counseling and and working on as a mentor to kids in his career now. And it changed his life. And the shift that happened is what psychologists would call a shift from a contamination story, a story that moves um, from really good things happening to bad things happening, to a redemption story, a story that moves from bad to good. And so if you're telling a bad story, searching for the good and looking for the good outcomes, I think, is a really helpful way to get yourself back on that kind of hopeful, meaningful trajectory. 
As an editor, I'm just so intrigued and delighted by the idea that you can edit your own story in your mind like that. Mm. But sometimes you need an assist, right? I mean, I I feel like we've all known people who are very stuck in a victim narrative, Mm. and they might have really good reason to see it that way. Definitely, Um, yeah. But, you know, sometimes you need need help. And especially when, I mean, it's one thing to look back. You can be much more reflective and edit your story when it's something that is in the past. Yeah. When you're in the middle of it. In the midst of it. Yeah. yeah. It's it's harder to reframe that narrative. Do you have any tips for that? Definitely. I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right. But one of the things about storytelling is that it's it's not going to necessarily happen overnight. It could, you know, it could be a long process and I would say when it comes to both the point of getting an assist and also trying to rethink your story as you're living it, especially if it's something difficult, I would turn to others as kind of editors in your story. Or if you see somebody going through a hard time, kind of helping them edit their story. So I know so many times, like somebody I I love will be like, oh, I'm just— I'm, you know, my boss doesn't think I'm doing well at work and I'm, you know, I I feel like a failure and I, I'm not kind of accomplishing as much as I want to. And then I'll think about just last week how they told me that they had gotten a really nice evaluation, that they had, you know, some something that they'd written was published and they got really good feedback. And so being like, hey, like, what about all these other pieces of evidence that contradict what you're saying. So doing it for others or doing it for yourself, like trying to find the evidence that might help you rewrite that story. Uh, You know, one of the things as humans that we have as a feature of our brain is a very strong negativity bias. So bad things happen. We're much more affected by them, much more likely to remember them. We have to have, like, in a marriage, five good things happen to, like, undo the effect of one bad one happening. It's like comments on social media. Yeah, exactly. You, know, you get 10 great ones and one person says, you look fat in that dress. And, yeah, And you're exactly. depressed for the rest of the day. Exactly, exactly. And I think knowing that and knowing that we have this kind of blinkered, therefore, perception of reality is good because it makes us— Hopefully, if you're trying to edit your story, you you will see that all that negativeness is not an accurate picture of reality. So really search for the good. Search for the evidence that contradicts the bad. Such great advice, Emily. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, If you want to connect with Emily, go to emilysfahanismith.com and connect with us at U-Turns Podcast. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.
I'm late. I'm late. For a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com you know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.